my friends. Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 48 of 2021, and it is officially Christmas sweater season. I'm Chris Louie, and with me I have my co-host Brian Deach, who probably destroyed at his Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, if I'm a little slow today, it's probably because uh, I might still be in that food coma from Thanksgiving. I believe Jim Gaffigan said it best. Uh, Thanksgiving isn't over when I'm full. It's over when I hate myself. (laughs) Sure words have never been said. And we've got Glenn Medina. Welcome back this week. Hey, everyone. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. Happy to be back for podcast number 36. Unbelievable that we only have about a month left and we just finished Thanksgiving. And uh, I think we're all ready for 21 to be over with. I think you guys will vote on that with me. Yeah, 2020, 2021, both lost years. Hopefully we'll hit the reboot button in 2022. Yeah, looking forward to traveling again. A lot more. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. No guess this week. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got four awesome stories for you this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This episode is being recorded before Thanksgiving, which means Black Friday and Cyber Monday are coming up. Anything in particular you guys are looking out for this year? Probably a ton of shopping for the kids and my wife, to be honest with you, but not not anything big tech, unfortunately. Maybe like those, uh, the AirPod, AirPod Maxes, the one that you think you and Glenn have, those look pretty decent. How about you? I, I think I'm just looking or am responsible for just the stocking stuffers. So small tech stuff, nothing, nothing big as like you, Brian. Um, but I am, I actually take that back. I am looking for a pool cleaner. So there's this Polaris pool cleaner that you plug in. We'll see if I can get one of those on the wish list this year. Is it the one that crawls the the bottom of the the pool? Yeah, yeah. 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 Is it like a Roomba? You just said, yeah, it's it? a. It's supposed to be yeah, wireless connected or Bluetooth connected to your phone, and does a maps out your pool, knows where all the edges are and everything. So it's not like it's going anywhere because it's contained within the pool. But I've got a like a Baja deck that sometimes the. Uh, the current vacuum doesn't work well with so i'm hoping this new one will 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 do a better job nice have you seen the uh the skimmer it's like a it's like a roomba skimmer it sits on top of the water and just kind of goes back and forth and solar powered nice yeah i don't i don't have have to put that on less i think it's like seven or eight hundred bucks i mean it's not free but it looks pretty cool you pay for the convenience well, you pay so that way someone else doesn't have to pull it out right? or pull that stuff out because I can't depend on my kids to pull leaves out of the pool. So I was going to say, I'm like, well, if you have kids at home, then you can make them earn their allowance that way. Yeah, I, all my kids are gone. So <laughs> <laughs> I've become the pool boy. Ooh, there you go. SE manager well. <laughs> and pool boy. That's it. That's my new title. Now, this year I'm looking for home automation. I originally was afraid of it because of how complicated and complex it is. But actually, I talked to someone who we work with, and he pointed me in the right direction for some good resources. And it actually turns out it's not as bad as it seems. So if I had known it was this easy, I probably would, should have done it years ago. But there's tons of awesome sales on some home automation stuff. 
this year. So I'm going to stock up on that. And some circumstances in my life are changing and I might have to leave my home office a lot more. So I'm actually looking at the new MacBook because I've been working off this Mac mini and I can't take that with me everywhere I go. So I might be looking to get one of those, getting one of those new uh, 14 inch MacBook Pros. Oh, hey, big shout out to you on the uh, the three pole light switch. So when I last did my house back in the day, like five, six years ago, like if I had a, a light switch that was, you know, had like, you know, two different switches at a minimum, you just couldn't do the smart home ones. I had no idea that they actually existed, Chris. So thank you for that. Uh, which means now I, I maybe I'll start looking on uh, redoing my hallways now that uh, you've pointed me in the right direction. Uh, a pro tip. Are you are you planning on installing like the wall switches yourself? Yes. Yeah, that's that's the plan so far. Yeah. OK, so uh, the biggest thing that you can do is like on the back of them, sometimes you can just kind of plug them into that that port on the back, the, the power, and yeah. it just kind of bites onto it. Or you can hook it around like a screw and then, and, and, you know, uh, yeah, can wrap it down it. on the, and wrap yeah. it. Always wrap it because those ones that you just plug in, they can tend to arc, cause fires and whatnot. So be careful with that one. Yeah. No, thank don't you. Don't forget Appreciate to kill the, the main fuse. Kill the main breaker as well when you do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Safety first. Then you have a mess. You don't want messes. <laughs> nope. Are the, the switches you're doing, are they going to be dimmers as well or no? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to future-proof the house and plan for recess lighting, LEDs, dimmers. So I'm getting that all out of the way up front. Curtains? I mean, powered uh, window shade or anything like that? That'll come next, I think. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I want to automate it in such such a way that you know, when when sunset comes, then the auto, auto go down and then sunrise, they can come up. But yeah, that's hopefully I can get it to that point and blah, 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 auto shades, auto drapes. So probably the thing that made me love my kids the most was uh, I put in motion detectors in the bathrooms and uh um for the fan and the uh the fan in the in the restroom and the light as well as uh motion detectors for the closets and so when i when we first moved in they're just leaving the lights on everywhere it's just kind of annoying the crap out of me because i leave at eight o'clock in the morning and then i get home at like four and you know all the lights are in the house so i went out and these were not the smart ones right they were just pure motion detector and it was just it was great because you can configure it to turn off after like one minute three five or twenty i forget what it is and it was neat because like uh, for the shower, right, you know, the light, whatever, they'll turn off after, you know, five minutes of inactivity. But you want the fan to stay on a little bit longer to clear out all the, you know, mm-hmm. steam and whatnot. So that's, that was, yeah, uh, you know, kudos to, I think, uh, is it Lutron? Yeah. It? Yeah. Kudos that to sounds them. right. You, you make me love my kids more. So did you, uh, <laughs> did that automatically set the timer for how long the kids took a shower as well? So, because... If there wasn't any movement, the lights would turn off in the bathroom and they'd be done in 10 minutes. No, you know, what's funny is that <laughs> that was a problem at the very beginning, like because you can set the sensitivity and they're like, Dad, like it's turning off every, you know, three minutes or something. I was like, all right, so I fixed that. Uh, but the biggest mistake I think I had done is, uh, and this was recently in the last six months, I, I replaced a shower head with one that was a little bit more high output for whatever reason, if you know what I mean. And then I looked at my water bill. I wasn't, I was just kind of like auto pay. And then one day I'm like, oh my God, like, why is my water so high? And uh, like, granted, the kids take long showers and whatnot, but that shower head was just like, it was just a ton of water was coming out. So I, I replaced it and my water bill went down by 120 bucks in one month. <laughs> that low flow. Yeah. They're not very excited about it, but they're not paying for it. So I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Do you guys know they make smart shower heads now? So you can say like, Alexa, make it rain, and then it turns on your shower for you. Oh, that would be sick. <laughs> Alexa, stop looking at me, weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get the Alexa that has the camera on it. That's that's the yeah. tip there. I know they have ones that have the speakers built in, too. That's kind of sweet. Yeah, they have the speakers. And then the ones with the screen, like the Echo Shows, those have cameras on it. So you can actually make a video call, and then you can also take selfies with it. Yeah, you can actually, there, there's a privacy uh, button on there that will cover the camera. Yeah. Did you say selfies with your shower video? <laughs> Something for everyone. That's optional. I guess so. It's yeah. a feature, not a bug. <laughs> Get it out of my house. I don't want anything to do with it. All right. On to our first topic. We're going to kick off our podcast with our ransomware story of the week. We do our best not to turn our podcast into a ransomware podcast, but this story is truly paradigm shifting for the ransomware industry. We have often spoke about ransomware crews using day one or even older exploits, sometimes years old exploits, to gain entry into corporate networks to steal their data and infect them with ransomware. They're highly successful because companies just do not patch or they do not patch quickly. When we talk about true zero-day attacks on the show, it, it's always a nation-state attacker, and it's never been the case that it was used in a ransomware attack because zero-days are too expensive to be used as an alternative to much cheaper day-one and older vulnerabilities. There's a popular saying, it takes money to make money, and those ransomware crews are now living up to that. Apparently, researchers have discovered that ransomware crews are now purchasing zero-day exploits to further their attack campaigns. Security researchers are also picking up chatter on underground hacking forums that the appetite for purchasing zero days by ransomware crews is increasing. Some crews believe that the investment into the zero day is worth it because they can get their money back plus more if they successfully collect a multi-million dollar ransom. Not only can these zero days be used to gain access into corporate networks, they can also be rented out as an exploit as a service to other criminals. Think of it as a more shady version of Zerodium, who are also acting as zero-day exploit brokers for supposedly law enforcement and governments only. Have you guys actually ever come across a zero-day or even like even try to you know seek one out yourself? It's been I a have, while for me. Yeah, yeah, no, I haven't. So I actually have one. I was in, in Blue Coat, I'm sorry, Blue Coat training back in the day. And I was in the office and we were like going over the entire thing. We came back from break and uh, like, I forget what it was, but it was like a blue coat report tool. And for whatever reason, I noticed that like I got logged out of the main UI, but this report tool step was still up and running and I was able to kind of navigate and, and cruise through there. And I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. And so I was talking to the guys like, Hey, you know, should this be the case? Should you be able to like get un um, authenticated access in the reporting? He's like, no, there's no way, right? And so, uh, long story short, um, it was able to work. And then if you fast forward a little bit more, you were able to replay that authentication token that had come through to give you administrative access into, uh, you know, the the console uh, per se, the web console on the Bluecoat device. And so they're like, it was kind of a weird moment where they're like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. And then all of a sudden, I had some product managers coming in, and they're asking me to show them what I had done. And this is like early on in my career; I really had no idea what I had stumbled across. 
And, uh, you know, they, they took the information, they said, you know, said, thank you, whatever. And then I went back to my training, but that was one of those weird ones. I was like, wow, I had no idea uh, what I actually had stumbled across. I wonder though, <clears throat> like that was, that's a hundred percent pure luck. Cause I've gone out hunting before and I, I have never been able to find anything, you know, outside of like, you know, weak security where something hasn't been patched, you know, known exploits. That's, that's easy to do. Right. You just, you know, patching schedules that puts them at risk. But finding a true zero day, I almost feel like they are getting the software and they are reverse engineering it and looking for holes in the code to get in there. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's usually the case. You you take a piece of software like Chrome, you try to do your best to reverse engineer it or even an open source software as well. You can go through the code and try to find where the vulnerabilities are. Um, a lot of it has to do with like things like fuzzing, just throwing a lot of garbage data at the the problem and see what what breaks. Uh, some things like there's a there's a next gen firewall company that had a a pretty bad RCE and it had to do with a a stack overflow and just total lack of of ASLR, which is the address space layout randomization, which is pretty standard today, but this this firewall vendor didn't implement it and didn't do it right, and there was just a a remote code execution bug in it and just not following industry best practices for building software. Sometimes that, that can be, be it as well. And just, yeah, just looking for even old school type attacks, like a, a buffer overflow. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, yeah, go ahead. Um, go ahead. I, I think that's the case with most uh, events, right. That happen is the fact that, you know, we, a programmer didn't stick to something that they should have done or a vendor should, uh, shouldn't stick to something that they shouldn't have done. Just like, you know, um, SQL injections, right? How, how often are SQL injections happening? Probably more often than you think, but it's something that we've known about now for what, over 10 plus years, right? So kind yeah, of strange. SQL injection, cross-site scripting. It's like, this stuff still exists. You're, and you're surprised when it comes up. It's, it's like, you're surprised, but you're not. Yeah. 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 And usually what happens, right? Like, I can't remember... A, a specific attack i think it was against the uh one of the credit bureaus and they had you know using like apache struts vulnerability to get in but once they were in it's like two different mindsets it's like you do like these external scans to look for vulnerabilities in your environment right this thing just happened to get exploited and they maybe they knew about it, maybe they didn't but once you're in then there's a whole other realm of thinking is it's like well no we protect the front door we don't allow things to come in so if we have like this old you know, web server running here and has been passion years, that's okay with us because we think that we're okay. But then what happens, right? They That's where they, they log in with like default credentials like admin, admin, or they look for a, you know, secure, I'm sorry, SQL injection, things that have been around well before, like, you know, good secure coding practices have been kind of uh, standardized in my opinion. I mean, that goes towards the idea or concept of, you know, security and layers, right? So, yes, you were able to get past this next-gen firewall because of some CD event. But at some point, you know, further down the line, IPS, I, you know, IPS, IDS, proxy, you know, whatever other security controls are inside their malware, those layers are technically supposed to lessen the risk that, that, that people run into, right, or corporations run into. But a lot of the times it doesn't, which is another, which is another, which is, a different story, right? So, yeah, limit the blast radius. Knowing that people are eventually going to get in, but once they're in, how can you limit the damage or 
uh, of what they can do. Yeah, do you, I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you think organizations spend more time on this castle and moat, you know, layered protection versus in, once inside the network? Because if you talk to a lot of the customers out there or even people that we know, it's it's like a lot of the time is really bent on building that wall and preventing people from coming in. But not a lot is if you look at it is not is 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 meant to protect from an east west standpoint. It's definitely changing. I think the like you said, the castle and moat, the data center centric type approach. That's the way we built networks for the last 20 plus years. And now that everything's moving to the cloud, it, it is taking a mindset shift for that. I am seeing the trend that there's still a lot of focus on keeping the bad guys out, but I'm seeing an, a significant uptick in increased focus on how to limit access once once they get in or even even standard users, once, once a user's on my network or once the user has access to an application. How do I ensure that an, a user doesn't have more access than they, they need? Yeah, when you move to the to the public cloud or even private cloud at that, right, there's still a front door. And, it, and it's interesting, like in the terms and services, right, you're not even allowed to do any pen testing against this stuff because supposedly they're doing their own stuff. But yeah, it's trust us. That, trust yeah, us security. Trust us. Yeah. So then you're left with like, well, now we start, start looking at things from like an out-of-band perspective, look for misconfigurations. And then on top of all of that, still try to do secure coding practices in very highly agile environments where they're rolling out updates to, you know, internal or even customer facing type of applications several times a day. I just don't, I don't understand how you even do that. I think it's such a crazy cat and mouse game behind that. Yeah, but on the plus side, that guarantees job security for us for probably as long as we want to work. Yeah, for real. So real quick, going back to like your statement on fuzzing, right? Like I, I've done it, right? And I've had zero success, but I, I really think that's like kind of a needle in the haystack. I think you just have to be really, really lucky to find something when you're looking for a stack overflow, buffer overflow. And then you, you even commented on open source stuff, right? You know, running through that, that code, but you look at like Shellshock, right? That, had, that vulnerability had been there for like over 20 years. So to me, I think I think it takes a special kind of mind to really know what to target and really what to look for. I think there's some type of indicator there um, when you're when you're going through the the hashes and whatnot. And you're like, you know what, this looks like it might be something. There there has to be something in hex. I have no idea. That's kind of an indicator of like this could possibly be bad, as opposed to just fuzzing everything and hoping to get lucky. Usually, the first step is to make something crash. If you can make something crash by fuzzing it or by doing something unnatural, that's usually the first step. Get it to crash and then you might be able to get into some unexpected state and then that's when you can potentially take over. So that that's usually what you want to look for first. Well, let's pick on United Airlines, right? Like you said, I want to I want to make it crash. There are so many aspects to that website, right? Like there's the booking engine, there is, you know, the covid engine that's on there. There is, uh, you know, check-in, there's uh, membership mileage. I mean, there's so many entry points to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I guess it's just a numbers game. If you want to sit there long enough, sometimes I even wonder if there's an insider. It's like, hey, man, this thing was written by Caveman. I bet you we can do something. Yeah, you find the service with the weakest APIs, and then that's where you, that's what you target. All right, for our next topic, this episode will be released on Cyber Monday, so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about the increased level of phishing that tends to happen around the holidays. 
In general, the rule for unsolicited email is when in doubt, throw it out. Phishing is not new, but attackers are constantly coming up with new methods and techniques to outsmart the spam filters and email security gateways out there. I came across a real novel technique that I believe is worthy of coverage as a topic for the podcast. Email security gateways and spam filters use different algorithms for determining whether an email is malicious or not. For example, they analyze the contents of an email for grammatical errors, misspelling, forged use of company names and logos such as Microsoft or Facebook, Well, one phishing crew figured out a clever trick to write a long chunk of legitimate text, but they put it in one-point font, so it's nearly invisible to the human eye and will trick the algorithm into thinking it's a legitimate email. The goal is to get the amount of legitimate text versus potentially malicious text to a point where the email security gateway will mark the email as legitimate through semantic analysis. We've seen other techniques such as using static images instead of text or using a colorized table to imitate the Microsoft logo, but this one-point font trick is something I've never seen before. Bro, you have seen this everywhere. You probably even did it. Like, if you ever had to submit an assignment online and there was a word count there of 2,500 words, the last paragraph right after that, there was another paragraph in one-point font in the white color with, you know, some lore ipsum type of text back there just just (laughs) racking up the things. My kids do it all the time. I guarantee it. I guarantee you've seen this. (laughs) That is devious, Brian. Stop that. <laughs> I had a I had a friend in uh oh my gosh, man, this is this is throwback. This is back when we had typewriters, right? And this this teacher, her name's Mrs. Hunt, we felt like she just didn't like the male population. So we we made it into senior year in English, um <clears throat> in honors English or AP, whatever you want to call it. And no matter how hard we tried, just couldn't get anything higher than a B, right? And so my friend, his name was Stephen Letterman. He's typing stuff up and then it was double spaced, right? And so in between the double space, he would write stuff in there like this paper deserves an A. And then he would hit the backspace on there, which would put like white ink back over. But you can kind of see it. And like Mrs. Hunt is the greatest teacher alive. Like on every other sentence, he got an F. Like she noticed it. (laughs) She didn't care. (laughs) She was a great teacher though. She actually prepared me for college. I'll give her that. You see, Brian, I I went to school in an era where we had to print out our homework on paper. So even if they said word count 2,500 words, like it it wouldn't matter. Like they they don't put it through some type of analysis tool like like they would today. It would just be, you know, 2,500 words is X number of pages, double space. And if it was plus or minus, it'd be within the acceptable limits. See, I, I, predate you guys because it wasn't the number of words that was the assignment it was the number of pages that i had to submit so it was either and a lot of it in predates typewriters right where we had to handwrite everything so it was uh basically write larger (laughs) instead of small or use used larger fonts when we did get to typing but that's typing i don't know if you guys remember the ibm selectron with the little ball that that didn't have yeah. a font that had one font size. You couldn't change that font size if you wanted to. Yeah. So double spacing, one and a half spacing, I try and get you to the page limit. Oh, oh one of you guys in my Catholic grade school. So do you guys remember the, the um, handwriting form called shorthand? Yeah. Yeah. So my shorthand. mom actually knew it and I, I wow. had taken her her uh, her bi- uh, I'm sorry, a book 
and I had gotten in trouble and I had to write like a thousand times, like, you know, I will show up to class on time, whatever it was, or I won't do, you know, stage dives off the teacher's desk. I forget what I was doing. And I was like, man, this is total BS. I don't want to do this. And so I found my mom's shorthand book and I wrote it all in shorthand, which took like this exponentially long sentence. And it was down to like three little scribbles. Right. And I turned it in. She's like, I'm not taking this. Get the heck out of my class. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan trying to exploit the system. It's, it's sort of like the air bud rule. I'm like, you didn't say what language I had to write this in. True. That's true. Wait, there's no true. rule that says a dog can't play basketball. Therefore, they can. Yeah. Well, going back to this, right? You know, I guess our email gateway is going to start looking for one point fonts as, a, as a, an, an indicator that it's not actually good stuff. Yeah, they're gonna have to tweak the algorithm now that they know about these these new tricks and to to see if if there's a a tag in there to, to put the font size at at one point. You know, actually, I'm gonna no, I'm taking a step back here, Chris. I guarantee you've done this. I know that you've done this. So you on your website at one point in time when you were trying to hack Google, right, and trying to get your your search engine results to to pop up higher, you were probably like throwing a bunch of stuff in the the head content in your HTML. Or writing just a bunch of buzzwords in the in the content of the body, and just making it again font size one, and matching the color of the background. Didn't you do that? Or you, Glenn? No, really? Yeah, I only yeah, use yeah, legitimate I SEO. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, all right. Not... So let's talk about SEO at another uh, point in time because I always thought that was interesting. That's what I did to get search engine optimi- optimization, and it worked. Yeah, you yeah, did your SEOs. Own. Interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll say that as a topic. Maybe we'll do it next week. Uh, on to our next story. As a callback to last week's episode about college textbooks being a huge scam, we have another story that involves higher education. Instead of learning to be an electrical engineer or an underwater basket weaver, under, underground hacker forms are now advertising and offering college courses on how to start, operate, and monetize botnets. Botnets such as TrickBot and Emotet, which we talked about last week, operate as a huge thorn in the side of security researchers. These botnets are made up of numerous compromised computers and the botnet operators, they steal passwords, they blast out spam, spread malware, among other malicious acts. Running a botnet is not easy as we have seen some high profile takedowns and arrests of botnets and their operators. This college-level course is meant to teach things like how to spread malware, set up command and control infrastructure, evade law enforcement, and the like. You would think a course advertised on an underground hacker forum would be a huge scam and the, the alleged professor would make off with everyone's money, but you would be wrong. There are lots of five-star reviews for this course on these forums, and even novice hackers have found a way to make their money back by running their own botnet. Are the five-star reviews found on Yelp, or...? Just on the website itself, because I think I could forge that a little bit easier. Yeah, I think I think it's on the underground forum. They have their own review system there. Trust amongst thieves. I like it. Evil Yelp. <laughs> hacker you. You can call that hacker you. <laughs> All I can say is, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. I think this is legitimate. Might as well go for it, right? Have some fun. If you're young, what's going to happen? Especially if you're under 18. You know what? Don't listen to me. What do you pay? crypto currency to attend <laughs> probably yeah that, that makes no <laughs> sense i can't imagine giving them my credit card so 
Yeah, it's, it's like you sign up for this course, and it's like, oh, well, there's a registration fee, there's orientation day, and oh, you have to buy these special textbooks for the course. Oh, yeah. This does not include room and board. Yeah, and then, oh, by the way, there's a health fee where we're going to have to provide a doctor, even though you're not on campus. I've, I've, had, I've had that, so. <laughs> oh, don't forget orientation. There's an orientation fee, so. All I'm saying is 16-year-old Brian would have signed up for this in a heartbeat. I'll agree with you. Yeah. I've been in class with you as well. Just kidding. It's interesting because it, 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 it's sort of like a, a Sun Tzu, like a know your enemy type thing where you can get educated on how they build it and that would give you a good idea of how to take it down. 100%. The, the most I ever learned about like Zeus, right, was, was setting it up myself and actually running it and figuring out like how this thing actually worked. We should go sign up and then use Zoom to kind of like all three of us watch at the same time, same training, there <laughs> save <you go>. some money. <laughs> you think the guy, the teacher, will just be on the on Zoom with like a, a purge mask, giving us advice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, purge mask is mandatory. You guys remember Che Guevara? He was the revolutionary. I think he was down in Colombia, and he he was a revolutionary. He was a, he was a rebel fighter. And his one of his claims to fame was he wrote an entire manual on guerrilla warfare, on how to take on governments, how to use a much smaller force to attack a much bigger force. And his, his legacy actually was the Colombian government got a hold of this manuscript and uh, turned it against him. <laughs> they, they learned all the tactics that he wrote about and all his guerrillas were using, and they found ways to counter all of those those tactics. So it's it's like if this playbook falls into the wrong hands, then it makes your your entire operation basically worthless. It's uh, it's funny that you say that. I was just listening to the uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, and they were talking a little bit about, you know, the the influence of social media and stuff. And he's like, if you really wanted, it wasn't him, it was his guest, but he was like, if you really wanted to start a civil war, right? What you do is you go on the Facebook and you you try to radicalize people, and it sounds difficult, but like, what if you went on to like a veterans group, right? of soldiers and you just start going on there like, Hey man, you know what happened with Afghanistan pulling out? Didn't that stink? Don't you guys feel like all your hard work was kind of like for nothing. And it just kind of starts there. You start planting these little seeds and then eventually you get these, these people that just, you know, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's a war cry out there and they're ready to take action on it. It's, it's, it's freakishly realistic. And I think it's going to happen, not necessarily in that context, but I can see it happening in other things. Well, that's what the saying is. It, it's like it only takes a spark to ignite a revolution or something like that. So, yeah, if you get the right message to the right people, and it's, it's not a political thing, it's just a how people think nowadays thing. Uh, yeah, you can turn some people that would normally not do something and uh, make them to go do something that they normally wouldn't or influence them to. Well, I yeah, think I mean, the prime example of that is the AMC or GameStop, you know, guys that are sitting there trying to prevent wall, uh, wall street right they're uh trying to get that get that stock going and that was all just grassroots yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, investing right yeah absolutely that, i would say that would arguably be used for good right i think there was some some good things good outcomes of that that kind of raised awareness uh i would i would think one of them that kind of shocked me the most is uh there's a documentary called into the storm it's on hbo and it's it's all about QAnon and uh, like the influence that this person had 
just on like 4chan and then eventually 8chan and it just blows my mind like they, they didn't even need facebook or instagram to kind of spark like this whole revolution or this 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 different thing you know this you know giant conspiracy theory it blows me like if you ever watch it like you just your mind will be blown to find out that it was this one dude that was behind it all and you're just like how dumb were all these people or i should say dumb but they were easily manipulated at the end of the day Chris is like, I'm a big QAnon supporter. What are you talking about, Brian? <laughs> Shh, don't tell anybody. Just kidding. Just kidding. I have no beef with any any veterans or QAnon people. Like, you know, I can see how easily I could fall into something like that. All right. For our last topic, and it will be a rotating topic every week. This week is, do you guys have any Thanksgiving traditions? And we might have to split into pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So for me, pre-pandemic, we would celebrate Thanksgiving with family. We have two sides of the family, so we'd go see uh, both sides of the family. Uh, Back in the day before I had um, a family of my own, I would light up on Black Friday and try to get that $500 laptop when that was a steal. I'd go to Fry's Electronics, even though they're not around anymore. They'd have amazing deals, get DVDs and and the like. Line up there at 3 a.m., come home with all my goods and then just sleep the day away and go until the weekend and play with my new toys. Uh, Post-pandemic, though, we've kept our bubble a lot smaller uh, just because uh, kids aren't vaccinated yet and want to keep them safe. Uh, So we've kept it a lot smaller to very close family and very close friends. And it's definitely different. Like, I I miss being able to see my extended family and and my cousins, but it's also nicer because if you could show up to a party with 30 plus 40 people like you don't really get to talk to any one person very long you're just sort of making the rounds but being smaller and closer and more intimate you get to get more quality time with with a fewer amount of people how about you go first brian yeah yeah i can remember the days of lining up in line trying to get like a dreamcast or something like that and then having to return the dreamcast because i figured out that it wasn't as cool as like the playstation 2 or whatever it was back in the day um yeah i can't you know pre and and post pandemic really didn't change for us um at all so it's always wake up and uh well i guess last year we did our 5k by ourselves this year it will be you know the neighborhood going out and doing the run um we always host and uh it's kind of like an open door policy like whoever doesn't have a place to go you just come to to the deach household we're gonna take care of you and some years i cook you know a 18 pound turkey and some years i cook three like it just really depends on the the, you know, the volume of people that are coming in, and the only prerequisite is uh, you're gonna have to watch football with us, and uh, we're gonna be uh, you know bring you know bring a side of some nature, and I would say that uh, probably the most compelling thing to I would think that pe- the reason why people would come over to my house is that I would always do like the deep fried turkeys, uh, but recently and I love doing them, but it's just it's a hassle to clean up. Um, but I, I, in the last couple of years, I switched from that to smoking the turkeys and, uh, I like it better and it's not so much the smoky flavor. It's just, I just think it's easier in, in, you know, easy to get set up and whatnot. And my favorite thing about all this now is I used to be like, Hey, dinner's at three o'clock dinner's at five. And I was like a madman, right? You know, checking the, the, the fryer temperature or running back and forth and trying to let it rest and trying to let it carve. And meanwhile, everyone's like, you know, freaking out cause they want to eat. Uh, to now, like I'll get up probably like six o'clock. I'll start smoking the turkey. It will be done by ten or eleven. Um, I'll cut it up, let it rest, or let it rest, cut it up, and then I, you know, put it in a warmer with all the juices, 
and we'll be good to go. And then when people show up to the house at one, I get to hang out with them and I'm not running around like go. a chicken with my head cut off. Or a turkey. Or a turkey. Even better. <laughs> yes. What? So uh, all three of you guys need to answer this. But before I forget, what is your, your actual favorite Thanksgiving food? Oh, it's uh, pecan tarts for my aunt's house. My wife's aunt's house. She makes the best pecan tarts. Yeah. What about you, Chris? For me, it's that that deep fried turkey. If you like deep fry a turkey in peanut oil and you get it just right, man, it amazing, amazing. Do you do, do, you do deep fried as well? Yeah, yeah. Typically, we we do. We have the the butter ball. It's it's a, they call it an indoor fryer. I wouldn't do it indoors myself. I do it out on on the balcony. Uh, but yeah, it's a butter ball uh, indoor fryer, and yeah, you just it takes a lot of peanut oil, so it's it's it's, yeah. it's pricey, but it's it it tastes so good. It's it's amazing. So is I, that like I, a pressure cooker because it's indoor? No, no. it's just, no, it's just no. got a lid on it. It's electric, yeah. which is nice. Yeah, um, I have the same one. I, I've actually done it inside. No, no qualms about it. Like I'm like whatever. The only thing is, I feel like the uh, at least in Arizona, I couldn't get the uh, the the oil hot enough. Hmm. Oh, yeah, no, not a Maybe, problem here. Yeah, like it would always like. So the goal, right, when you deep fry turkey, is that you usually get it up to like three seventy five. You put the bird in, and then it, it cools down to like 350. Then you monitor it with this electric one, though it's 350, right? And you're cooking this thing for a very short amount of time, and you can't get it hotter than 350. So you put the bird in, and then you're like, "Well, shoot, this thing can be done 12 minutes, and it's you know cooking at you know 310, 325." You're just like, "Geez, wish this thing would hurry up." Yeah, you just don't get the crispiness. At least I don't. Yeah. Well, so in the in the Medina household, we typically go to my wife's aunt's house where I get my pecan tarts or my fill of pecan tarts. Um, they normally cook the turkeys, so they have normally one fried and one smoked. Thanks, uh, thanks to Lamont out there. I really appreciate the food that you supply as far as from a turkey standpoint. We're responsible for bringing uh, meat, so I'm I normally bring either ribs. Or you know pork butt or a rib um, a, a ribeye roast of some sort. So, but yeah, that's uh, like I said. I just like to add to the meat fest. Dude, what the hell? I've never had ribs or anything other than turkey on Thanksgiving. It just blew my mind. I know what I'm doing this year. I gotta go find a roast <laughs> or something. Jesus. Yeah, that's good. It goes great. With, it goes great with the turkey. So, yeah. By the way, I'm not a pecan tart person. I don't think I've ever had one, but I love pecan pie. That's my that's my jam. Right, everyone in the house they're like, eh, "It looks like cockroaches." I'm like, "I don't care. It's delicious." It's the same thing, except just a little smaller. Okay. <laughs> so. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Important question: Is it pecan or pecan? It depends if you're in Texas versus the rest of the world. <laughs> so. ah. I think it's both. I have no idea. What did I say? Yeah. Pecan or pecan? I think you said right. pecan because you're parroting Glenn, but I, I say pecan. Yeah. You know, pecan, like if I have like a sophisticated scotch, you know, it's pecan oh. pie is delicious, boys. <laughs> pecan. Pecan, uh, yeah. Pecan if I'm eating me some deep fried turkey. Chris and his Voss water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, Glenn's up. So this one's going to be a tribute to Star Wars and Thanksgiving. So uh, what did Han Solo say to Luke Skywalker on Thanksgiving? What? What? 
May the forks be with you. Uh, all right, that's a good one. That one will be told around the uh, Thanksgiving table this year. All right, to wrap things up, ransomware crews are starting to dabble in the world of zero days. Phishing attacks are getting more clever and sophisticated, so be careful out there on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Watch out for those scams. Criminals can now take college courses on how to build and run a botnet, and the hosts discuss their Thanksgiving traditions. That's all I have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Follow us on Instagram at Pepcac Podcast. You can help us grow the podcast by telling someone else about it. Thank you to all our listeners and subscribers who rated us five stars in the iTunes store and left us a review. We really appreciate you spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the Pepcac Podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. For my co-host Brian Deach and Glenn Medina, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. And as always, have a nice day. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Have a nice day.